It's here. It's election season. There's no avoiding it. Even if you were a hermit living deep in the mountains, you couldn't possibly miss any of the news. After all, you'll find political posters along roadsides, from New York to California. Billboards advertise one candidate or the other. Some stores even have posters in their windows. Heck, you can't even escape it when you're meditating. All right, let me explain. Imagine you're relaxing. You're alone at home. You turn down the lights. You light some candles, and then... You go to YouTube. You want to look up some relaxing music to just set your mind at ease. You're about to enter your Zen mode when, whammo, suddenly you're hit with a jarring political ad. I've heard so many over the past few months, and I'm sure you have too, especially if you use YouTube. These ads are loud, they're aggressive, and so many of them are just trying to influence your vote. They all end with one of two messages. It's either, I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Or the ad will end this way. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. Now, don't worry. We're not here to talk about politics. But I am here to help you navigate this chaotic atmosphere that is just sweeping over the nation during this election season. Emotions are running so high. Information is everywhere. But, you know, not all of it is true. There's always the worry of fake news. And in 2019, there were a lot of rumors swirling around, especially, it seems like, on Facebook. So many people consider that site to be ground zero for fake news, and so many people get their primary news from Facebook, so that's the problem. For example, one fake story that tons of folks fell for last year claimed that there would be a nationwide ban on motorcycles. Of course, that didn't happen. We all know that now, but at the time, a lot of folks believed the lie. But let's say you never even go to Facebook. You don't even have an account there. Unfortunately, you're still going to run into the rumors, the disinformation, and other tricks. And of course, there's a ton of worry about foreign intervention. Remember all the headlines about Russian meddling that popped up back in 2016? You may be wondering, will that be a threat to this election? Americans are super worried, but it makes sense. With all these security threats, it's easy to be on edge. And when you're voting online, you have very specific concerns. For example, how can you be sure that your vote counts if you cast a digital ballot? Is voting technology secure? What about mail-in votes? Is it really possible to hack an election? We're going to be answering all these questions in this podcast. After all, in this atmosphere of so much uncertainty, knowledge is power. It really helps to know as much as you can. And I'm going to make sure that you know all about the digital dangers that are lurking this November. This is essential listening for any voter out there. So stay right where you are and stay tuned. Welcome back to Tech You Should Know, your number one source for all things digital. Now, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in whatever app that you use for your podcasts. And speaking of apps... Did you know that social media is just a terrific way to spread misinformation? This is especially true during the election cycle. There's been a ton of research on the ways that advertisements, posts, and even memes can impact voters. And let me ask you this. How much would someone have to pay you to get off of Facebook and Instagram? That question might seem like totally came out of the blue, but it's actually an idea that Mark Zuckerberg came up with himself. Here, take a listen. Facebook is going to pay some users to deactivate their Facebook or Instagram accounts until 2020's presidential election in November. 
The company said the study is meant to analyze the impact of social media on key political attitudes and behaviors during the election. That clip was from Idaho News 6. Here's how it works. Facebook is sending a survey to select groups of people who use Facebook and Instagram. Those folks get to say how much they'd have to be paid to deactivate their accounts. The options are $10, $15, or $20 a week. Now, after the election, these participants have to take a survey before they can reactivate their social media accounts. So what do you think? Would you take the money? Okay, while it's nice to see a social media platform like Facebook take action against misinformation, we all know that they have a really bad history of doing anything correctly when it comes to fake news. Facebook has been under a lot of hot water recently. I'll never forget that footage of Mark Zuckerberg, you remember this, at the congressional hearing just sweating bullets, sitting on what looked like stacks of books, taking long, nervous gulps of water. Now, of course, we'll have to wait to hear the results of this Facebook study I told you about. But one thing's for sure, this election season is going to be a really bumpy ride. That's why I'm really happy to have along with us Max Eddy. Max is the senior security analyst at PCMag. He's interviewed countless professionals, and he knows about the latest trends in election engineering. Now, Max, give us some background. There are tons of things a reporter can specialize in, right? Arts, entertainment, sports, local news... So what brought you to election security as a keen focus? It's a really interesting spot where kind of the theoretical parts of information security really needs something that's big and important that's not just money and corporate money, sort of like the, that end of things. It's, this is very much like directly affects people's lives in a, in a huge way. Absolutely. And you've been doing this for a while, right? Well, I've been reporting on it for a while just because it's a topic in the industry that is it's probably the biggest topic it could be, I guess. Especially right now, every four years, it's the biggest security story. So I've kind of just ended up covering it on and off uh, the last several years. Now, let's just take a second and give our listeners a little bit of background information. So this is nothing new. Since the very first days of voting, there have been security threats. Yes, it just depends on how the election is run that kind of defines what the threat looks like, right? So way, way, way back in the day when all the ballots were on pieces of paper put into boxes and then they're physically counted, had to be like coordinated over several days in order to figure out who won an election. You have to worry about things like ballot box stuffing. You know, someone comes along with a bunch of fake ballots and just jams them in into the box to sort of throw off the vote. There have always been trolls and cheaters who want to throw off the vote. Luckily, we're past the days of people stuffing boxes with fake ballots. But unfortunately, that just means we've got a ton of new threats to deal with. The difference now is that because so many systems are connected to the Internet, that means that there's, they're much more accessible to people who aren't immediately at the polling site, right? So if you want to stuff a ballot box, you have to be at the polling site. If you want to pack a voting machine, you probably need physical access to it, I hope. Not a, that's not true for all of them, unfortunately, but, you know, it's, once you start dealing with systems that are connected to the Internet, almost anyone can attack it. And when I say systems connected to the Internet, I don't just mean voting machines. Obviously, Internet-connected voting machines are a problem. I want to talk with you more about voting machines later on. But first, tell us about the systems that are connected to the Internet. Elections are much more complicated than most people think. I mean, there are tons of moving parts to keep track of. And, of course, every moving part is a potential entry point for hackers. An election is a 
huge, huge thing. And it's not just poll workers and it's not just voters. It's every little thing that enables that to happen. So it's the people who handle shipping the voting machines. It's the printer that prints the ballots. It's the bus that gets the voter to the polling place. It's all of the organizations working behind the scenes to ensure that the money and the material is available to make an election happen. And if any piece of those is compromised in some way, it can slow down an election. It can make an election seem less um, less believable. That's a really good point, Max. The threat of an election seeming unbelievable, like it's been compromised. So many people have that concern. Right now, I don't, I don't think anyone is very concerned about votes being changed. What's the bigger concern is that there will be doubt cast on the outcome of the election. Um, but if you are able to affect any piece of the web of things that supports an election, you can do all sorts of damage. Let's give our listeners some examples right now. I mean, what's the worst type of damage this could cause? You know, you might think that the worst case scenario would be that a bunch of votes get changed and someone who shouldn't have been elected is elected. While that's terrible, there's probably an even worse outcome we could see. But I would actually argue that the worst thing that could happen is that someone's vote doesn't count because as citizens, um, the only way that we can engage with our democracy is by voting. And any time an individual's vote is taken away from them, um, they're disenfranchised and, and they're completely politically depowered. And, you know, Max, that goes against everything our country is based upon. People being able to vote. It's how we shape our future. So that's probably the worst thing. But um, threats to the actual vote count is a huge concern, obviously. Um, but as I said earlier, the, the big problem that will affect everyone is if there is doubt cast on the outcome of the election, even if it is the correct result, even if every vote was counted correctly and the right person, and by that I mean the person who, you know, under our system won the election, is elected, if people don't believe it, then it makes the entire system, the entire American political system, greatly weakened. Really? How so? If you don't believe in your government, if you don't believe that your government has the right to do things, then all of a sudden it, it becomes this huge struggle. And that's the biggest threat right now. That's how you destabilize a country. That's an excellent point. When people feel like their votes don't count, like their voices aren't heard, they rise up and they protest. Let me give you an example. That song we just played, well, it was sung by protesters in Belarus. Students were protesting the re-election of a dictator who's ruled the country for 26 years. Activists believe he manipulated their votes. Now, of course, police forces are throwing protesters in jail left and right. And like all dictators, he's trying desperately to stomp out all signs of dissent. As Americans, we don't have to worry about things like this, like our counterparts have to in Eastern Europe. We have faith that our votes count, or can we? So, Max, we've talked about what can happen in an election if it's compromised. Now, let's talk about how an election can be compromised. Are there different security threats that people are facing depending upon the way that they vote? For example, let's say you're voting digitally. Are there certain ways your vote could be compromised that you wouldn't see if you were voting by mail? There's got to be a ton. Right, right. So um, when you are voting with a machine that is all electronic, there's a lot of problems there, uh, simply because it's much harder to verify that the vote was correctly cast. There's an idea in uh, election security that comes from Ron Rivest, 
And he sort of outlined this idea of software independence, and uh, it's where an undetected change or error in the software of a voting machine, it should not cause an undetectable change or outcome in the final vote. Drill down a little bit deeper in that. What does this mean exactly? So if something goes wrong, you need to have a mechanism by which to see that it went wrong. A lot of purely digital voting machines, especially older ones, were just sort of like dumb counters. You've got a bunch of numbers that spit out, but where did those come from? Where's the the ballot that that came from? Those machines can make it very difficult to verify an election. And there are a host of other concerns about voting machines. Here's more from Fox Media. And the greatest threat to these machines probably isn't hacking. They're not even connected to the Internet, so remote, large-scale meddling would be almost impossible. The biggest problem is that they're so old, some of them may not be working right. For over a decade, there have been reports of apparent vote flipping, machine errors, and hardware breaking down across the country. But even though this happens every election, very few machines have been replaced. When you're voting, you've got to think about the tech you use. I know, I know, in election season... You want to focus on the important topics at play. You want to examine each candidate's platform. You're busy thinking about the way this season's will end, and it will shape the future of America. But in order to shape that future, we've got to feel confident that our vote really counts. And to do that, you've got to have a thorough foundation of knowledge on just how your vote is cast. Coming up, we're going to do a deep dive into the tech that you're dealing with when you're voting. That's right. Even if you're voting by mail, you're still impacted by election technology. And as we said earlier, you're still at risk of being victimized by outside forces. But don't you worry. Max and I, we've got your back. So stay tuned. You've got a lot more to learn about. Okay, we're back. Strap in because we're going to be taking you into the wild west of election season. I'm kidding, of course, but then again, there are a lot of wild cards you got to deal with. So, Max, we've spoken a lot about machine voting. Any final thoughts before we move on to the next topic? Yeah, actually, I think the biggest common misconception about election security right now is that voting machines are the biggest problem. This isn't to say the voting machines are 100% safe. It's to say that in the last decade or so, the relationship between the vendors, the security researchers, and the government has become much less fraught. So the voting machines are being made better. The concepts of how to like do a really secure election are kind of more widely accepted right now. Everyone kind of agrees that a ballot that has a paper trail of some kind is preferable to an all-digital system. And we've seen that move in, in the number of in the ways that people will be voting this year, I think only 14% of Americans, according to verified voting, um, only 14% of people will be voting in an entirely uh, digital way this year. And that's, that's a great improvement. The voting machines are the things that people engage with. And I think it's really easy to see it as the weak point. And there have also been a lot of very true, very real stories about problems with election uh, with, with voting machines specifically. It is easy to see them as the weak point, but they're actually not. In fact, there's an even larger security threat in the 2020 election. Right, Max? But right now, the thing that everyone sees is disinformation campaigns and these efforts to sort of foment, uh, to expand on societal risks inside of the country 
for the benefit of some attacker. People might not think that a tweet or like a, a fake news story is particularly effective, but it is usually almost certainly part of a much larger operation. Disinformation is a huge issue in this upcoming election. And does that term sound familiar or are you just scratching your head going, what? What's that? I thought it was called misinformation. Well, here's a quick clip from a crash course. Author John Green breaks it down. The Internet changed how we communicate. We can talk across time and space. We can connect across geographical and political boundaries. We can create organizations and communities, find people with similar interests, or we can lift people up when they feel alone. But when information flows that freely, dangers are inevitable. Misinformation, unintentionally incorrect information, and disinformation, information that's wrong on purpose, spread quickly online, as do hate speech and propaganda. Now, did you catch that distinction? Misinformation is when you spread something you don't know is incorrect. Let's say someone asks you what time it is. You tell them it's 3 o'clock, but it's actually 4 o'clock. You just spread misinformation, but you really didn't mean to. It was just an honest mistake. Now, let's say someone asks you what time it is, and you deliberately want to mislead them. Imagine, say, there's a hot dog competition at noon and one of the other entrants wants to know how much time they have before it starts. So you think to yourself, hey, I think if I give them the wrong time, that's one less person I'm competing against. So you send them on their merry way with the wrong time. That's an example of disinformation because you are purposefully spreading lies. Researchers have studied what they call information disorders so deeply, there are a ton of other in-depth definitions. But right now we're going to focus on the technology involved in the election. So we've just told you all about voting machines. And you may be thinking, hey, I don't vote by machine, so I'm all good. (laughs) Slow down, partner. There's still a lot of stuff you've got to look out there. Max, for now, let's talk about some of the other ways people vote. What about online voting? And then, of course, mail-in ballots. That's what I'm going to plan on doing. Those come with their own issues, of course. So let's just spend a few minutes talking about all this. When you are marking a normal ballot and you put it into like an optical reader, which is I, I'm, that's how I vote here in New York City. And it's one of the I think one of the better ways to vote. Uh, that's got a lot of advantages to it. You've got the original ballot that you as the voter can see. You can see that you filled it out correctly and be confident that you did it right. It can be put into the machine and read quickly so you get the advantages of, uh, of digital technology helping to count the votes more effectively. And then at the end of the election, you can recount the votes if you want to, and you don't need to rely on what the machine says. You can take the physical ballots and count them. What about mail-in voting? You've spoken with a lot of professionals and experts while reporting on the elections. So tell us some things that you've learned. There's no greater security threat with mail-in voting, which is good because a great number of people are going to be voting by mail this year because of COVID-19 far more than usual. And obviously people are very concerned that they want to make sure their vote is counted. And it's a little bit disconcerting to put your ballot in an envelope and and then it's away from you. You have no idea what happens to it. Fortunately, there's ways in a lot of states where you can track your ballot as it's in progress. And you have an article about that over on the website, pcmag.com. But I really do encourage people to read that because being able to track your ballot is, is probably going to give a lot of people a lot of peace of mind. Government websites make it super easy to track your vote. All you've got to do is Google your state name along with track my vote and you'll come to a page that asks for your information. And like Max said, it's a great way to get some peace of mind. But Max, there are certainly security threats that you face when you're voting by mail too. But there are different concerns for mail-in voting, right? So 
Um, you have to be concerned about how those votes are handled, making sure that they all get collected, that they all get counted correctly, that they are all they all go through the right process. So while that's not while it's not necessarily insecure, it's just a different set of concerns than you might have with like an in-person voting uh, scenario. Speaking of security threats, in our last segment, you spoke about big-scale disinformation campaigns. Let's talk a little bit more about that. There are a lot of people who are deliberately spreading lies. It's a huge issue. It's a huge problem, right? And it's much easier and cheaper to do that than it is to try to attack a voting machine. People will tell you that our highly distributed voting system in this country where individual jurisdictions are responsible for how an election is run means it's much harder to mess with an election because we do things differently in New York City. If someone figures out how to attack New York City's election systems in a really effective way, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can attack Ohio's systems in a really effective way. There are pros and cons of this, but I I think people don't appreciate the, the sheer complexity of how voting works and that it's really hard to attack it effectively. And it's much, much easier to just sidestep that whole thing and just get into their Twitter feed. That's a great thing to think about. Yes, there are hackers who will try to compromise election security. They're going to try to bypass software security. They're going to try to break into programs connected to the internet. But you've also got to be aware of propaganda. Think of it this way. Your brain is like a computer. Every spark of your synapses is like a program command. And just like a computer, your brain can be hacked. That might sound strange at first, I get it, but just think about it for a second. If you're scrolling through social media, you're bound to come across some political post. And I'm not just talking about your aunt or uncle's long rant about the election. I'm also talking about memes. Ah, did I lose you? Hopefully not. You may think memes are nothing more than lighthearted jokes with a picture. That's not really true. They can also be used to subtly manipulate the way that you're thinking. If the creator is good enough, they could even influence you towards or against a particular candidate. This is a real phenomenon that's been reported on. Here's a little bit about it from CNN. Memes are fundamentally built on cultural shorthand. They succeed for the same reason that no one reads anything anymore but the headline of a story or the tweet of the headline of a story. Because no one has any attention span. We are a nation of skimmers. We share things on social media we haven't even read ourselves. We don't really much care about the details. Just give us the top line. Ideally, in a way, that makes us laugh. Max, let's talk about the threat of memes. It's not like we're used to thinking of such a lighthearted format as a potential threat. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some uh, an interesting presentation given by Renee DeResta. De She's at the Stanford Internet Observatory at the Black Hat Conference this, uh, this past August. And what did she talk about? Uh, she talked about how in the, the Russian troll farm in particular was really good at not just putting out propaganda or, or like staying on their particular message. They would also just put out funny memes and these get widely circulated. I have to tell you, it's strange to imagine government officials coming up with memes. It kind of makes you wonder, if James Bond were a real person today, would he make memes? Would that be just another tool he'd use as that super spy? Just a weird thing to think about. But Max, go on. Memes are everywhere. Talk about how it affects the voter. And they also will show up in, in people's, like, uh, on people's blogs that aren't even like engaged politically because they're just funny and people wanted to post them. So it helps build up kind of like a um, 
you know, like a rapport with some fake, uh, fake accounts, for example, if, you know, you see a bunch of funny memes, you might think that this is just a funny guy. And then, oh, yeah, they got political opinions, too. Maybe I should think about those. That's a great point. When someone goes to a page they know is going to be political, they have their guard up. But when they go to the page that they think is funny, their guard's probably completely down. And that's where the parasocial relationship comes in. Is that a new phrase or have you heard it before? It's a fascinating phenomenon that's only growing bigger as our world becomes more interconnected. Basically, it's a one-way friendship you feel you have with strangers online. For example, you watch a YouTube video and the person says something like, How's it going, bros? My name is PewDiePie. Maybe you immediately feel like a friend. I mean, he's calling you bro. He's being goofy. You're sucked into this parasocial friendship. But in reality... He doesn't know you. He doesn't care about you. But as you watch him, you start to feel close, like you're hanging out with a real friend and you're watching his comedy video, laughing, feeling like you're hanging out with a close pal. Then he cracks a political joke. And since your guard is down, it seeps past your defenses. It takes root in your mind because, heck, it came from a friend. That's how parasocial relationships work. Basically, this is something that happens whenever we consume content online. You feel an emotional bond with the person making the video you're watching or with the person who made the meme that you're laughing at. You feel connected to them, and that can make you more susceptible to their political messages. But it also allows them to kind of cleverly repackage disinformation. So, you know, if you, if you take a conspiracy theory and you just put it out as is, you know, it's going to be complicated and maybe people won't believe it. Um, you know, I, I'm sure everyone's had the experience of someone telling them to watch a 20 minute long YouTube video explaining why the earth is flat. Like that's not a super effective way to get your point across. But if you're able to come up with a funny meme and you package it uh, really effectively, you can spread it online very, very quickly. And then more and more people are being exposed to your political message. After all, everyone shares memes with their friends. Like you said, far fewer will share a 30 minute long political video. After all, who's going to click on that? Basically, a long political video can seem like a chore to get through. But you think of a meme as a break from having to do all that hard thinking and research. And people might not be as they might not be as skeptical of it if it's just something that they think is funny and that they just want to laugh at. And maybe that can start to seep into their consciousness. Like a lot of um, disinformation and misinformation is really uh, nudging people in a particular direction. And especially with content that doesn't look political, uh, that's a really great way to do it. Exactly. Um, and the social media platforms are especially good at spreading uh, content before it can be stopped. And this is a, a wider problem where, you know, if there's a, a fake news story that goes up on Facebook, it can be seen by hundreds of thousands of people before Facebook is able to flag it or take it down. So especially these memes that seem innocuous, those are even harder to locate and even harder to make an argument of why they should be taken down. It's definitely a slippery slope. And I'm hoping this conversation will encourage you guys and gals listening to keep your eyes and ears open. We all want to laugh every now and then. Gosh knows we need it in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe even more often, right? But be careful. Not all jokesters have good intentions. A lot of them are trying to manipulate your political beliefs. In other words, they are trying to hack your brain. So by now... It's clear there are a host of threats in the upcoming election. We've got to worry about disinformation campaigns. Then there's the logistics of counting mail-in ballots, which are sure to surge now that everyone's in their homes because of the pandemic. We've gone over voting machines, but they're not the biggest security weak spot. There are some bigger threats, 
like protecting electronic voting polls. And of course, there's the constant worry that our election could be hacked. But is that even possible? And if so, how? Coming up next, Max and I are going to answer that million-dollar question. You won't believe what the answer is. Today we're talking all about election engineering. And make no mistake, there are tons of would-be engineers out there. In 2016, hackers leaked emails from the Democratic National Committee onto WikiLeaks, and Russian trolls ran into social media to spread bogus information to mislead voters. Then hackers didn't stop there. They also attacked the tech at the heart of voting. I'm talking more than voting machines. They went for storage facilities, polling places, and even voter registration databases. Rest assured, the trolls are already out in full force this election cycle. You've got to be prepared. Otherwise, we could see a repeat of the last election. The Atlantic explains more. Russia hacked the 2016 elections, and they're going to do it again. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Russian hackers attacked the U.S. on two fronts. First, there was the psychological. Hackers used classic propaganda techniques to influence American voters, to tell them that the political system was rigged, and to make America's diversity seem dangerous. They spread their message by buying ads on popular social media platforms, like Facebook and YouTube. They programmed Twitter bots masquerading as real people. It's definitely frightening. Max, you've reported on election security for a long time now. And even to this day, there's a lot of controversy over whether or not the Russians really did meddle. Now, we're not going to kick that hornet's nest, but I do want to ask you the million-dollar question. Is it really possible, in your opinion, to hack an election? Well, I think it would be very difficult for a cyber attack to swing an election directly. It's by my understanding, and everybody in the industry sort of is on the same page now. What's that? By my understanding, and I think this is sort of an industry-wide consensus, that changing votes is very, very difficult. Now, it's not to say that uh, digital voting machines are completely secure. Um, it just means that I think there's a better relationship between the voting machine vendors and the government and security researchers. There's a much better communication happening right now where problems can be found and fixed much more easily. Well, there is some good news. When I went to the security conference, uh, the RSA security conference earlier this year, people just didn't want to talk about voting machines because they didn't see it as a problem anymore. Um, that's not to say they're safe, but they're just not as, as big a threat as they used to be. There's bigger fish to fry. But in terms of swinging an election, again, like disinformation is a really powerful tool. If you can get people to not go to vote on the right day, if you can convince people that there's something wrong at the, uh, with the election somehow that it's not legitimate, if you can incite violence uh, among voters. All those factors can cause chaos this election season. Like those are really powerful tools that can depress turnout or can cast doubt on the outcome of the election, which is almost the same as changing votes in a lot of cases. It's fascinating to think about. Even if an election's result are real, if people have doubts, then they might as well be fake. It reminds me of that one quote from Game of Thrones. Power resides where men believe it resides. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall. Um, there was some interesting work done by the security researchers at ZeroFox, where they looked at uh, targeted advertising on social media platforms. And what did they find, Max? So it's, it's pretty back of the napkin math. They just looked at the number of votes that would be needed to swing 
a tightly contested state like Michigan or uh, another swing state where it's tens of thousands or just thousands of votes between the winner and the loser in the previous election, and how much it would cost to target that many voters uh, using the ad systems that are built into Facebook, which are highly targeted. You can now pick out the kind of person you want to reach with a specific message. Do you know how much it costs? And they found that for like, you know, $77, you could reach every single voter that you would need to sway the election. Wow. Only $77 for each voter? Here I was thinking like they would need at least a few hundred. Now that, of course, assumes that every single person you reached out to did exactly what you wanted them to do. And if that was true, um, we wouldn't see company, uh, we wouldn't see campaigns spending millions and millions of dollars on elections. <laughs> this would be so much easier. Um, but it does demonstrate that the social media platforms and the ad serving systems on them are great tools for mis- and disinformation. They allow you to target specific people and they do it for very, very little money. This is why I like to advise all of my listeners to be careful of posts they see on social media. Maybe put the phone down and stay away from Twitter. Max, I'm curious, now that we're in the midst, the final days of the election season, there's a lot of disinformation floating around. How often do you see it when you're scrolling through, say, your Twitter feed? Well, it's, you know, it can be kind of hard to tell about who is wittingly or unwittingly spreading things these days. That's true. A lot of people spread misinformation. And if you remember from earlier, that's when you spread untruths without really knowing it. You can't always tell a person's interior motives, but it sure would be helpful. So, Max, what do you do when you spot, say, any inaccuracies about the election? Personally, when I see something that I wonder if it's disinformation or I wonder if it's uh, some kind of campaign operation, I treat it very carefully. I take a little bit longer to read up on it if it's saying something truly outrageous to see where where that comes from and where else it's being reported. Also, just to check the dates, like um, it could be a real story that's being recirculated at a different time to sort of sway people's opinions on something. I, I've I have been trying to do this. It's, it's hard. It's hard to uh, not get emotional about things that we read on the Internet. But I, I really do encourage everyone to sort of check yourself and save America by not retweeting fake information. There are some serious stakes right now. Your decision in November is really important. Elections are complex, very complex. It's so complex that we had to split this podcast into two episodes. So in this one, we've learned all about disinformation. We've talked about voting machines in depth. But, of course, there are other digital ways to vote, and there are other threats out there. And, of course, Max and I have a lot more to teach you about election technology. And we're going to talk about the biggest mistakes that voters make. We're also going to learn about the most vulnerable parts of our election. So if you've listened to part one, make sure that you also listen to part two of this podcast. And speaking of podcasts, be sure that you get my national radio show. It's heard on 400 top stations from coast to coast and around the globe on American Forces Radio, but there's only one place you can get that. That's on my website, the Kim Commando Show podcast. It's three hours every week, and you have full access to all the archives, as well as there are some other perks of getting the podcast, is that you can watch the show, as well as leave your tech questions in our Q&A forum. This one's not free. We've got a lot of bills to pay, as you can imagine, putting all that together. It's just a few bucks a month after your free 30-day trial. We offer discounts for seniors, military vets, and service personnel, too. Learn more and get your free 30-day trial right now over at GetKim.com. Once again, that's GetKim.com. I want to thank Max Eddy both for coming on the show and for doing such great work. And while we're acknowledging people who do great work, big thanks to our producers, Mike James and Cassie Taylor. And a special thanks to Serena O'Sullivan for all of her work putting this podcast together and making the magic happen. 
and thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with someone else. Give us a great five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Knowledge is what keeps us safe in the digital age. So you always want to share what you learn. And thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. Commando.